Well, good evening again. I wanted to um, talk tonight about the, like, the first thing, the very first thing, <laughs> apparently, out of the Buddha's mouth when he uh, started to teach the Dharma. This is the, from the sutta of setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma. And the first thing that he says to his old friends, who he finds after he's enlightened, is bhikkhus, which is the word for monks. These two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What to the pursuit of sensual happiness in sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial, and the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata, which is what the Buddha calls himself, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. The middle way. He goes on to say, and what, bhikkhus, is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, etc.? It is this noble eightfold path. Okay, put this book down now. That was... <laughs> Things heavy, in more ways than one. So this teaching on the middle way, so uh, vital to both to just the concepts of Dharma and especially to practice of Dharma, of meditation. And the Buddha arrived at this, uh, this teaching and this idea really as a result of his whole life. We can see that his life story leads up to this uh, insight, this teaching. His life began as very pleasurable, uh, completely uh, protected. He lived in this uh, royal household. He was the prince, and uh, his parents protected him from any exposure to suffering, They tried to make him as comfortable as possible at all times, not even let him see any suffering. And then the famous story of his being exposed to sickness, old age, and death, and his realization that uh, a life of seeking pleasure uh, was not um, practical, ultimately, that it was not possible to maintain continuous pleasure, because ultimately, we are going to face at least sickness, old age, and death, and probably a lot of other unpleasant things along the way. He doesn't uh, say that there isn't also pleasure in life. I think that's important to mention and part of the middle way. Uh, But he saw that this one extreme of seeking only pleasure was not a viable path and not a solution to life's challenges. 
So in a way that I like to characterize as alcoholic, because you know I'm an alcoholic, so I want the Buddha to be like me. Um, <laughs> he goes to the opposite extreme. You know, it was all pleasure all the time. Now he's just going to make it really tough on himself, and he goes on this extreme ascetic path. Now the story of his of his ascetic practices is is really um, outrageous. You know, he's starves himself eating one grain of rice a day, they say, to the point where he, if he touched his belly, he could feel his backbone. He sat in meditation so long that his butt became like the hoof of a camel. <laughs> and, and yet, he wasn't enlightened. He didn't find freedom through that. Finally, as the story goes, he realized that he needed to have a certain amount of comfort to be able to sustain any kind of concentration and mindfulness to be able to practice. And it was only after he took some food and started to live a little bit more of a normal existence that he uh, was able to have his breakthrough into enlightenment, his transformation of consciousness. Now, as, a, as an aside, I'd like to just point out that the, the Buddha said that his monks, who are living a pretty simple life and, and, and still do today the, the, in the monastic traditions, that they were allowed to have four what's called requisites. They're allowed to have food each day. He, just, he recommends just one meal a day. They're not allowed to store food, but they're allowed to have food. They're allowed to have clothing. They're allowed to have a place to live. And they're allowed to have health care. I'd just like to point out that the monks are actually doing better than a lot of people in our culture right now. Um, so if you're thinking about maybe you need some better insurance, you might want to go into the shave your head and get a bowl. So, the middle way. The Buddha talks about the middle way as a practice and how he practiced in this way, a balanced way. This is another one of my favorite suttas. It's the first one in this big book, which is called the Connected Discourses or the Samyutta Nikaya. And this, like many of the suttas, has um, uh, celestial beings in it. So. Don't take no offense at that, please, if you don't believe in the celestial beings, because uh, that's not the point of the story. It says that a, a deva, which is kind of an angel or a, some kind of god, comes and uh, to ask the Buddha a question. And, he, and it's interesting that these beings that are considered to be kind of on higher planes, when they come to the Buddha, they bow down to him. So he paid homage to the Blessed One, stood to one side and said to him, How, dear sir, did you cross the flood? Meaning, the metaphor is crossing the the flood from uh, samsara to nirvana. How did you become enlightened? 
And the Buddha says, by not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. And the response is, but how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and by not straining, you crossed the flood? And the Buddha says, when I came to a standstill, then I sank. But when I struggled, then I got swept away. It is in this way that by halting, not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. And this to me is a perfect example of what's meant by right effort or balanced effort or the middle way of practice. Not halting, so continuing to practice, but not straining, not trying to make something happen. Very tricky to get to this place. When it doesn't seem like something's happening, we can feel like we need to either make something happen or we might want to give up. And it's very hard to have the trust in the process to just keep showing up on your cushion or in your practice without trying to make something happen, but without just sort of saying, oh yeah, whatever, it's cool, whatever happens, happens. It's not, it's not either of those. This is a very tricky place to get to in practice. Now, Ajahn Chah, who was sort of the, in many ways, the lineage founder of this, this center, so he was Jack Cornfield's teacher and teacher of many other Western teachers today, um, Ajahn Chah has a wonderful story uh, about the Middle Way. And this is from Jack's book, uh, Living Dharma. The, uh, a new monk at the monastery, I'll just read from this, became frustrated by the difficulties of practice and the seeming arbitrary rules of conduct. Well, actually, this is Jack in the first person. He says, as a new monk, I became frustrated. I began to criticize other monks for sloppy practice and to doubt the wisdom of Ajahn Chah's teaching. At one point, I went to him and complained, noting that he was, even he was inconsistent and seemed to be contradicting himself, often in an unenlightened way. Takes some nerve. He laughed and pointed out how much I was suffering by trying to judge the others around me. Then he explained that, in fact, his teaching was just a balance. It is as though I see people walking down a road I know well, he said. I look up and see someone about to fall in the ditch on the right-hand side of the road and get off on a sidetrack on the right, so I call out to him, go left, go left. Similarly, if I see someone about to go off on a sidetrack to the left or to fall in the left-hand ditch, I call out, go right, go right. All of practice is simply developing a balance of mind, not clinging, unselfishness. Well, I love this story because it really points to the challenge that what we, I think what we all want is someone to say, just go that way. There's only one way. This is what's so appealing about fundamentalism and cults and charismatic teachers who say, I am the teacher, just follow me, just do this. It makes it very simple for us. We don't have to think. 
nice. We don't have to make up our own minds. We don't have to trust ourselves, our own judgment. Just do what the teacher says or do what the teachings say. Just do one, one thing all the time. But this, unfortunately, doesn't work in a world where things are not the same all the time. Now, the Buddha's middle way is directly tied to his observation and his teaching and insight into impermanence. Everything is constantly changing, so you can't find a one-line, straight-through way. Nonetheless, there are these tendencies to go to extremes in practice. We get a hold of one teaching and decide that it's the way. Someone mentioned to me this weekend about a teacher who said, uh, uh, I'm only practicing metta now. I'm only practicing loving-kindness, which is beautiful. Loving-kindness is a powerful practice, extremely valuable. But my concern with that is that, uh, well, I want to, I have to make this clear. If if we're saying we're only practicing loving-kindness and we're not practicing mindfulness, (laughs) then there's a, there's a, uh, a risk involved in that, uh, a kind of shutting out. You know, I'm only going to be loving. I'm, only, I'm going, only going to focus on giving love, and no matter what happens. And what happens to me, half the time at least, when I practice loving-kindness, is something other than loving-kindness. Other things come up. So what do I do with that? You know, if I'm if I think that I'm supposed to, when I do loving-kindness practice, I'm supposed to be loving, and that's all I'm supposed to be. If I think that's the way I'm supposed to be, and then some other feeling comes up, how do I handle that? Well, the natural tendency is to think I'm doing it wrong, or there's something wrong with me, or maybe there's something wrong with the practice. Because I'm trying to make the practice very narrow. I'm trying to eliminate all the rest of reality. So to me, loving-kindness is actually an insight practice. If I do it as an insight practice, so I go, may I be happy? And then I think, why should I be happy? I'm a jerk. (laughs) Then I get to notice, oh, wow, that's interesting. Where's that coming from? And instead of trying to push that away, then I bring that into the foreground. Wow, okay, there's that feeling, there's that thought. And that gives me an opportunity to learn something about myself, rather than think, oh, I just have to feel love, and if I'm not, there's something wrong. Well, a lot of people these days, one of the wonderful comments on my post last week on the Huffington Post was, you know, because I'm I'm talking about blending the 12 steps with Buddhism, was, uh, and for, for the purpose of recovery, and, and someone came on and said, the only thing you need for recovery is mindfulness. Well, this is kind of a, uh, I run into this a bit now, um, particularly in the um, therapeutic world. Uh, I was working with some researchers uh, who were developing a program for mindful eating, and, every, and they wanted to just make everything about mindfulness. And at a certain point I said, well, wait, you know, mindfulness is certainly considered to be, and I would agree that it's 
you know, kind of the pinnacle of the Buddhist teachings and the, and the center of our practice. But it's supported by and in the context of something called the Eightfold Path, not the Onefold Path, not the Mindfulfold Path, but the Eightfold Path. And that all those other seven components actually need to be recognized and appreciated. I, when I started to practice uh, Buddhist meditation, I was very idealistic, and um, this was before I got clean and sober, and um, I was able to neglect and ignore certain aspects of the path, because I thought, this is practice. The mindfulness and concentration, that's practice. The precepts and that whole thing about not using intoxicants, that's just kind of some uh, peripheral stuff for the, you know, for the people who aren't really in, as enlightened as I am. You know. I've transcended all that stuff. You know. But really what I was doing was trying to chop off parts of the path. And really, again, coming, going out of balance. Enlightenment as a fix. I mean, enlightenment is the goal of the path, yes. But the Buddha didn't only talk about enlightenment. He talked to lay people. He talked to uh, families. You know, he talked about living morally. He talked about politics. He was dealing with, with uh, kings a lot of the time. He spent a lot of time hanging out with those powerful people. He came from a powerful family. Um, you know, he addresses, he talks about the pleasures, the sense pleasures. He says that there's nothing bad about sense pleasure. En enjoy sense pleasure. Just don't become attached. <laughs> and when you get that down, then... But he does. He talks about different kinds of happiness, sensual happiness, meditative happiness, enlightened happiness. Well, he says, yes, there's a hierarchy of happiness. Certainly becoming the, the, the happiness of insight or of wisdom is the greatest happiness. But that doesn't mean that the other happinesses aren't pleasurable and, and should be ignored. It's okay. You know, I think that... Uh, Besides sort of going to extremes, oh, I want to tell one other story. This is one of my favorites to really illustrate this. Uh, this came from a, fr a friend who, a friend of a friend, so uh, you know, it's gossip about somebody I don't know. Uh, so you go on a retreat, and meditation retreats are powerful and wonderful and challenging and transforming, and, and they're really, without retreat practice, you're not really fully experiencing what this practice has to offer. Nonetheless, it is possible in the practice of sitting, walking, sitting, walking, paying attention to each moment, moment by moment by moment, a certain type of personality can become, uh, how can I say, obsessive <laughs> in this way. Because we're being asked to pay attention to each moment in and out, you know, just stepping, each step, each bite of food. So this one person who apparently was 
concerned about their oral hygiene on the three-month retreat. Uh, this is kind of a scary story, so if you're... <laughs> became somewhat obsessed with their flossing. <laughs> Flossed so much that they, in, they damaged their gums on the <laughs> retreat. You know, I just think it's such a perfect, like, off the middle way, you know. <laughs> Once a day, twice, maybe. You know, that's the middle way with floss, you know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> 10 times a day, it just isn't, that's, that's not the middle way with flossing. So, you know. Oh, that's just... Uh, that's probably the one thing people are going to remember after this talk, too. Remember that talk? Y'all, I remember something about flossing. Yeah. Well, we uh, run into uh, extremes. We, ta- we can take these extreme ideas into our daily lives as well. You know, we, get the, we read some uh, Buddhist text, and, and uh, there's many wonderful ones, but... Uh, as they say, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little bit of knowledge about Buddhism can really be confusing. So you read something about how Buddhists aren't supposed to be angry. So you decide, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to be angry. I'm, anger is bad. I'm, I'm never going to be angry. Oh, no, I'm being angry. Oh, I, I, no, I'm going to let go of that. I'm not going to, you know, I don't care if that person just stepped on my foot or drove into my car. I'm not going to get angry. You know? Oh, they stole my money. They broke into my house and stole my money. I'm not going to get angry. You know? and, and we can see that, that anger has its function. It has its role. Not that, we, you know, we want to become violently angry, but to try to live up to some ideals. This is one of the ways that people go out of balance in practice, is they living up to some ideal of practice. Many people come to practice with the idea that meditation means I'm not supposed to think. Have you ever tried that? Yeah. And what happens? They come in, they sit down, the teacher says, notice the teacher never says don't think. But that's what they read between the lines. Teacher, teacher says, notice when you're thinking and acknowledge that and then come back to the breath. Something like that. So what we hear from that is, I'm not supposed to be thinking because when I notice the thought, I'm supposed to stop and come back to my breath. So obviously, it would be even better if I didn't think at all, if I just stayed on my breath. It's not exactly what we're saying, but we hear that, right? So what's the result of that? Oftentimes, frustration, self-judgment, and not uncommonly, just abandoning the practice. I have heard from more than one person, I'm no good at meditation because I think too much. Well, I always listen to that and I take a little offense because they think I am good at meditation because I don't think very much. <laughs> so what are you saying? I'm stupid? I mean, I don't think? I think all, you know, rarely do I not think. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, I usually don't think at the time when I should be thinking, so. How about this one? The second noble truth says the cause of suffering is desire. I've got to stop having desires. Desires are bad. Oh, okay. Now, if you want to create suffering, just go for that one. Desire is natural. Thinking is natural. This is what humans do. Mindfulness isn't about suppressing your experience. It's about seeing it, seeing it clearly. 
the way that we let go isn't by forcing ourselves not to have desire or not to think or not to get angry. It's to see it, look, look closely, experience it, feel it in the body, feel anger in the body, feel lust in the body, feel the suffering. The letting go comes naturally out of the mindfulness. I see people who kind of get caught between a monastic life and a lay life, and it looks like real suffering to me. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to become a monk, but I'm going to live really simply. That's great, living very simply. But then to create your life as kind of without joy somehow, it can kind of start to turn that way, like a joyless kind of like, like I, you know, I shouldn't, I should never watch television, or I, um, you know, I, I um, well, I, I don't want to talk about things that people might be not doing. And there's nothing wrong with not watching television. That's great. But, you know, the ways that we can kind of deprive ourselves, like, oh, it's better if I don't have a car and I'll just take the bus. It's like, oh, yeah, it is better. But, you know, if you work out there, maybe you need a vehicle. Just the types of ways that we set up these models and ideals. Um, and to me, the, the, the key for all of this is to be mindful of our intention, mindful of what we're experiencing. Uh, really look at things rather than through a lens of idealism, through a lens of realism. I mean, if the Buddha was anything, he was a realist. Um, the, uh, uh, food is a place where we get into extremes. Have you noticed? Yeah. Uh, yesterday was a good day for getting into food extremes. Um, if you happen to be a football fan or just, you know, a food fan. The, the mindful eating program that I worked with, with was very interesting. Um, they talked about the problem of diets. That you go on this extreme way of eating for a period of time, suppressing your, your desires, suppressing your natural cravings, and lose a bunch of weight, and then you go back to eating the way you normally eat, and you gain back all the weight, and nothing's really improved, except you've improved the sales of the diet books. You know. I'm going to give up all carbs. You know. That's really popular diet. You know. um, it seems like there's, there's a give up everything diet for virtually every food stuff. And then there's breathitarians. They're, they're my favorites, really. The, what the mindful eating program said was what people need to do to, who are you know, significantly overweight and who, who need to um, lose weight and maintain weight loss is they need to change their relationship to food. They need to change how they eat as a lifestyle and find a balanced way. And they don't say you can't eat anything. Really interesting. People come in and they go, what, what do you mean? I can have ice cream? Yeah. You just can't have the whole bucket, you know. 
well, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> Once I start, you know, well, part of the training is actually we, we give people uh, small amounts of, of really their treats, things that they really like, chocolate or salty, oily chips or something. Small amounts just to taste. Now, one of the interesting things is that um, this was actually developed in the Midwest uh, where, you know, people don't eat like they do in the Bay Area. Not to be, uh, and this isn't any kind of judgment, it's just the way it is. You know. And uh, this pr woman who started this program, uh, Jean Christeller, the people that she was working with, many of them really liked ho-hos. You might not even know what ho-hos are, particularly if you're raised in the Bay Area. It's, uh... But she would cut them, uh, cut up the ho some ho-hos into small bites, right? And and then say, okay, we're going to eat these mindfully. Yeah, and it, you know, smell it. Mm. Look at it, mm -hmm. wipe, mm -hmm. start to eat it, and people be like, Ugh. you mean, this was my favorite food, I can't believe it, just by bringing attention to it, to this thing that was, they thought they liked. Very interesting how paying attention can transform your relationship. So they didn't have to say, you can't eat ho-hos. It was, yeah, you can eat ho-hos. Here, really eat one, you know. <laughs> I'll let you have one. Well, they discovered that they could really help people much more rather than restricting what they could eat, but rather training them to eat in a different way and to approach their food in a different way. Uh, Uh, in Berkeley, um, people uh, can be kind of, uh, what my wife calls them scolds. Uh, she actually wrote a piece for the Chronicle some years ago about scolds in Berkeley. People will randomly tell you how to raise your children if you're not doing it right in the grocery store or something. And, um, my daughter, she's 12, she was 11 at the time, she was um, trick-or-treating and she and her two best friends had decided to go uh, as Charlie's Angels for trick-or-treat. I, you know, I, I don't get involved in these choices. Um, and I don't even know where she got the idea. I know she hadn't ever seen a movie or anything. It was probably just some you know, poster. So they dressed up, they got these wigs and the outfits. And Okay, yeah, good. And they got little uh, squirt guns. You know, he, and they would do this pose, you know, like the... <laughs> They go up to this woman's house uh, in our neighborhood and uh, trick-or-treat and the woman comes out, she's got her candy, um, and although she probably had carrot sticks, I'm not sure, but, uh, <laughs> and she sees that uh, they've got toy guns and she gets upset, uh, she says, I'm, I'm sorry, but you know, you, I, that's, you shouldn't be carrying those, those guns, those are bad, and so you can't have any candy. <laughs> My daughter and her friends are like, you're kidding me. <laughs> you know, that's a little extreme, I mean, you know, yeah, I agree, we shouldn't be, you know, giving kids a lot of guns, but I mean, squirt guns, I don't know. I'm still talking about the middle way, I want you to know, so just in case you're wondering.
My point is, of course, that squirt guns are the middle way. <laughs> so, uh, again, to, uh, how do we how do we know what the middle way is? Now, if you look at um, the way that monks practice and live, in our culture it might seem extreme. One meal a day, uh, not handling money, uh, celibacy. These would be considered somewhat ascetic practices. It's not eating one grain of rice a day, but it it's, um, would be challenging for most of us. And if one takes on these practices in a way that we're trying to suppress something or live up to something, some ideal or some model of how, um, you know, oh, good, I'm a spiritual person because I live, this is the way I live. Indeed, you will be creating suffering and you will be out of balance. But these practices are meant actually to wake you up. So ascetic practices are not meant to cause suffering. That's not the point. The idea of penance, you know, self-flagellation, this is a distortion of what ascetic practices are for. Ascetic practices are all actually supposed to train us to let go by giving us small amounts of discomfort. Just in the same way as when you sit down to meditate and you you make the commitment to sit still for a certain period of time. During that time, you may have an urge to move or to get up or to check your email or you might start to get hungry or thirsty. But during that time, a relatively short period of time, half an hour, an hour, you've committed to not do anything, to not act on these impulses. What happens is that you then notice the experience of craving or aversion. And you see what it feels like and you breathe into it. And when you come back to the breath, you see that you can be with it without having to act. That you don't have to be driven by craving. That you don't have to be driven by aversion. This teaching and this practice is experiential. It's not about following some ideal. It's not about following some rule. It's about tasting the truth of the teachings so that when we feel craving as we sit and we make that commitment not to move, we feel the truth of the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is craving. We're knowing it for ourselves. This is what's meaningful. Hearing it and reading it a thousand times is useless if we don't taste it for ourselves. So this is what we're doing when we're setting up these little challenges for ourselves, these little practices of letting go. So whether it's eating once a day or simply not eating between meals, taking on some small practice, not as a test of ourselves or a challenge, but just simply to notice, to wake ourselves up, The other thing that the ascetic practices do is when we feel the difficulty, 
when we feel that, that mild discomfort, it snaps us awake. We realize, oh, wait, I'm getting attached. By definition, when there is suffering, there is attachment. That's a slightly off-the-middle way pronouncement, actually, because uh, there is the suffering that's inevitable of sickness, old age, and death, etc. But very often, if we check back with ourselves when there's discomfort, we can notice that it's caused by, because we're clinging to something or we're trying to push something away. When we practice sitting through challenging moments, we cultivate our own power to let go. And letting go is the third noble truth. This is the way to the end of suffering. So this practice isn't about models or ideals, but about tasting the truth. And this is the middle way. For each of us, in each moment, we have to find our own middle way. Just like someone walking on a tightrope. There's never a moment of just standing on the tightrope. It's a constant process of finding the middle, finding balance, being going out of balance and coming into balance. This is what our practice is, to keep watching, to keep looking. People will ask, what is right effort? Right effort depends on mindfulness. To make an effort with mindfulness, to see what is the quality of my effort in this moment. Am I striving? Am I halting? Or am I somewhere in between? One teacher calls this vigilant surrender, which is a middle way statement. It's actually the, the two sides of the middle way. There's vigilance, there's that bright whiteness, being, being awake, but there's letting go in that vigilance. This is the path. This is the process of this work. So, um, there is time left. So I'm going to open it up for uh, questions or thoughts, comments. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, let's use the microphone, because then, if you, since you're recording it. So, any, any questions, thoughts, uh, corrections? Great, there's an arm swinging back there. Hi, um, Hi. I, I have a question about letting go, and I'm not really quite sure what the question is, but there's probably a question in here somewhere. Um, we uh, uh, lost our 17-year-old daughter uh, to suicide three years ago. She jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. And, um, uh, you know, people, you know, in various ways try to give this, you, you got to let go, you got to let go, got to let go. Yeah. You know, spiritual people, you know, we yeah. talk to mediums. Well, you've got to let her go so her spirit can move in. And, and I, I know what they, they don't mean it in the sense of forget about her, right. but in, in just some 
irrational way, I not only can I not let her go, but I want to hold on to the pain because I feel closer to her. I don't know. I, maybe there's a maybe you could find a question in there somewhere, but it's just. Well, I don't want. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Thank you, uh, and um, obviously we're all, you know, moved and touched that you even want to stand up and share that. I, um, uh, to me, the idea of letting go of that, I would, you know, forget it, you know? <laughs> I mean, how, how could you? How could you ever let go of that? That's just so simplistic. Uh, that's, that's the greatest loss that any human being can have, is their child, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, to me, it's about... Um, living with the pain. How do I live with the pain? What do I do with the pain? Is there value in my life beyond that? Is there something that can be done with that that's going to be meaningful to me? Not, not about stopping. I, I mean, I totally relate to your feeling of, of wanting to hold on to the pain because it keeps you connected. I, um, I just think it's uh, just to keep loving her, you know, and I'm just doing what you can with your life that has meaning. Thank you. You know, the fact that you're here says a lot to me, so, you know. The thing is that we all want to turn away from suffering. This is, you know, the Buddha said about the first noble truth, we need to understand it. And when others suffer, we want to turn away. It's the same way when you see the homeless person. You know. uh, when other people suffer, we want, we're afraid of their suffering, so we try to make their suffering go away. use the microphone just because it's being recorded. I have a friend who's um, I have a friend who's an alcoholic and I haven't heard from her in six months and she called me today. Um, she was in a six month program and uh, was clean and sober for six months and then when she called me today she was inebriated and for the first time ever I gave her tough love you know I said you know her daughter had gotten diabetes, and she was upset about that, and she was suffering. <laughs> and she wanted to reach out to her friend, who usually gives her unconditional love and support no uh -huh. matter what. <laughs> and today, I just couldn't, 
I just couldn't give her that normal love and support. Right. And I, I said a pretty cruel thing. I said, how can you, how can you use your daughter's disease and sickness as an excuse to drink? It's pathetic. Yeah, doesn't sound particularly cruel. Sounds pretty accurate. <laughs> so that was me turning away from her suffering. Was it? I don't know. No, That's I, my you question. know, no. I, I mean, to me, uh, look, it's very tricky to give tough love, as you put it. You know, it's with because. Um, it's hard to express uh, anger or you know, frustration with people without it taking you over emotionally so that then you, uh, rather than being skillfully angry, you become actually angry, angry <laughs> and, and destructive. So that's really tricky and, and I, um, I find that very challenging. Nonetheless, um, being nicey-nice to people who are behaving badly and harming themselves and others isn't helpful either. That's not really love. And love isn't always nice. Right? I mean, it's, there's got to be a song in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, you know, love takes many forms, but ultimately my understanding of love is that it's the expression of your desire for someone else to grow spiritually. And by saying, oh, it's okay, you know, when it's not, then you're not really helping them grow. So sometimes people need to hear something a little harder than that. Doesn't mean they're going to listen to you. But you also have to express what's true for you, you know, because otherwise you're being dishonest in your own way, right? So... How do you know when you're turning away from someone's suffering is turning away and when is it expressing kindness? You don't. You know, you, you, you do your best. You try to be honest with yourself. Stay in, touch, stay in touch with what you're feeling as much as you can in that moment. So as you're speaking to the person, are you feeling a, uh, a frustrated anger or are you feeling... Uh, um, like the kind of wisdom of the, you know, cutting wisdom, as, as a, you know, the Manjushri with the sword of wisdom, you know, and, and you can feel that in your body. I mean, this is, again, one of the reasons why we practice is to get in touch. When you sit and you watch yourself just following your breath and you watch thoughts and feelings come up, you're practicing for real life, you know. You're practicing getting to know yourself starting to feel your own feelings and see what's it feel like when you get angry. You know, you start thinking about the neighbor and how they'll, they're, they always start running the leaf blower when you're trying to meditate, you know, and you start to feel that, oh, that's anger. <sighs> Breathing and letting go, you know. And you start to know yourself, your interior landscape. And as you learn that, then you can bring that into the world, into your interactions with people, so that you can be more in touch as you're interacting with people and, and 
know whether am I being swept away by my anger here or is there something that I really need to express that's authentic that I can stay present and grounded as I do it. It's practice and most of the time we fail but that's, you know, we keep learning and, and watching. If you do that with sincerity, uh, there's an expansion of, of the ability to be, to be mindful, the expansion of the, um, the situations in which we're able to do it. It's just a, it's a practice. And, you know, forgiveness and compassion for ourselves are key to the practice. Uh, understanding that it's really hard, life is challenging, and we're trying which is more than you can say for a lot of people. So we're trying, and so when you notice you're failing, to say, you know, can I forgive myself, and can I understand that what I'm trying is very challenging, so I have compassion for that, for that failure. Yeah, thanks. Yes. I'm reading a book. It's called Instant Health and Happiness. Um, <laughs> it, oh, it, it works. Um, <laughs> How much did that book cost? <laughs> <laughs> and just to, it, it was just a thought, a little answer to the question was, um, one of the quotes was, our duty is not to see through people, but to see them through. And then another page, each, each instant happiness is 365 days, so you get oh, one yeah, each okay. day. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Um, was it discussed marriages that worked. And the ones that did were the ones that took a minute of uh, praising somebody, giving gratitude before you gave them the bad news. Yeah. So maybe drawing out that she had done so well for six months and that kind of, you know, pep talk and yeah. I love you and I value and, and, and that, you know, you, you're my friend. You know, yeah. I love you. You are my friend. And then, you know, like go to the other side of things. But I've got to tell you the truth. Yeah. You know, I'm really, mm -hmm. really, really concerned for your daughter yeah. and for your well-being. And so I've got to tell you. I love that part actually. Yeah, that's good. But she the said whole minute, and the ones that the ones that did so so in their marriages only took a half a minute. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know I, that I think that's really that's very good advice, and it reminds me a little bit of when I was in my master's program, creative writing, when we would have the critiques, and the teacher always said, you know, say say something good about the thing before they <laughs> critiqued you, and. I always just felt like it's about to come down. <laughs> it just never made me feel any better. <laughs> but it's true that it, you know, it is a better strategy. At least it can work. But I'm just a negative type. I'm always waiting for the, the thing to fall down. <laughs> so. Yes, and go ahead. No. Come on, bring it on. Oh, Andy, oh there's, oh, there's somebody back there. We'll get you next. And then we're going to have to go. Uh, Hi. Did you come in? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. You're Thank on. You. Uh, 
about five years ago, I was laid up in the hospital for about three weeks recovering from the effects of radiation. Mm. I had a tumor at the base of my tongue. So my weight was down to about 152 pounds, and I was uh, uh, holding on for dear life, as they say. And uh, I had laid up in the hospital, I had plenty of time to recover, and, and so I had to get used to the idea of, uh, as you say, letting go, I mean, no nonsense. And as one actually does that, uh, I, the phrase comes to me as, as the body wanes, the spirit soars. The remarkable thing is, is that we do possess such a thing as that spirit. And it exists at the, uh, the, the very heart of our autonomy, the thing that is purely us. I'm not talking about ego. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I am talking about this incredible life that we are given. And we forget about that. We forget that it heals on its own regularly. We forget that it tells us. It tells us frequently what to do. And I think there's a great deal of power in it, but the thing is, it, it comes when you let go. Perhaps it's the Buddha nature that finally surfaces. But it is there in all of us, and I think that even the most monumental suffering uh, can even teach a great deal more. This gentleman is just incredibly beautiful. Yeah. That he could share that story as humbly and as honest to goodness is, is, is tremendous in itself. We'll all go home with his story. Um, and this is not to try to gain saying his suffering, such as it is. But I think we do have to rely and fall back on that very, very powerful thing, which is our, I don't know what you would call it. I want to call it our self. <laughs> but we do possess that spirit. Yeah. It, uh, it was amazing to me. I, uh, I was walking around smiling and, you know, being happy with people. People would come to visit me and I'd be, you know, like, oh, I couldn't even eat. And I felt, I never felt more spiritual and more contained and pure in my life. Uh, here. Thank you. Yeah. I think that, I mean, one of the things that I'm hearing from you is, and, is that, maybe I'm not hearing it, but I'm thinking in, in relation to what you said, that, that we think sometimes that we have to do everything to make things happen. And, that, that, um, and I think that's one of the reasons, getting back to my theme of the evening, that we go to extremes trying to grasp and make things happen rather than trusting you know, uh, the process, the process of healing, that, you know, both internal and external, physical and spiritual, that happens over time if we just keep kind of showing up, try to bring the qualities of kindness, of letting go, of presence, uh, that we don't, ha we don't have to make things happen any more than when we get a cut, we have to make the skin heal. The body does that, and we just have to kind of create the space for that to happen. 
and, and I think, to me, that's much the way meditation practice is as well. It's not that you come in and force yourself to be on the breath and create a state of concentration or insight. You can't make that happen. You just come in and create the circumstances, you know, the conditions under which that can arise because it is something that we contain, which we are, it's an, it's an innate capacity of the human mind and heart to become awake. And, and, and we just have to allow that to happen and trust in that process, which is scary because uh, we want to control it. Thank you. So there's one, one more, and then we're going to have to go. This woman in the front had her hand up first. So, sorry. Um, can you talk briefly about um, the inevitability of suffering and sickness and, and death? No. Versus, well, I mean, just, uh, no, so I mean. It, it takes too long. Okay. Well, no, I, won't. Go I know, ahead. I, because I know there, you could, I say that because obviously the answer could be enormous and well, infinite. Okay. But well, what there's is, what that is versus the cause of suffering being craving. Uh -huh. That it's okay. some is inevitable sure. yeah. and some is. I, can, I think I can talk briefly yeah. about that. And um, I'm, uh, it'll be you know, my version of that, so you might want to look for some other teachers' answers to this, but um, there's, the Buddha talks about two different sufferings, and the best, the best reference for this is the teaching on the two darts. The first dart is the inevitable suffering that if you are born, then, and he, the Buddha says birth is suffering, Aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering. So, and having what you, uh, having what you don't want is suffering, and not having what you do want is suffering. So you can list this stuff that's kind of inevitable. That stuff's just going to happen in the course of life. What he really is talking about in terms of letting go is that when there is some discomfort, we then react to it and add suffering by saying, I don't like this, I gotta get out of here, this is terrible, rather than the acceptance that, oh, this is a natural part of life. And what we discover, if we pay attention to this process very carefully, which is, again, what we're doing in meditation, is that we, if we feel a pain in the knee as you're sitting, if you can just take your mind into that and experience it without aversion, that it's unpleasant, but it's not actually suffering, it's just sensation. But that when we resist it, the second dart, we don't like it, we start to complain about it in our minds, the body tenses around it, we, we actually physically, in that case, create more suffering. It, it starts to hurt more, it's more painful. And emotionally, it's more painful too. We, we add this emotional response. Oh, this is so bad. Meditation is so hard. I hate this. You know, when, when can I go home? I should take up Sufi dancing, you know. <laughs> and, and so now you've doubled the trouble. You know, you've doubled the pain. So this is, this is kind of the separation. There's, the, there's the, the discomfort and then there's the story that goes with it and all the, all the emotional responses to it. So, thank you. So, before we go, let's do uh, a moment of dedication of merit. And, and I'd like to just suggest that um, 
the two-month retreat has started up the hill. And um, so let's send some loving kindness up the hill that, that the people who are practicing up there may be uh, comfortable and happy in their practice and that uh, they may all become enlightened. Come down and enlighten us. When we practice, there can be the sense that we are doing this for ourselves. And certainly we hope that we do get some benefit from practice. But ultimately, we are only part of this much greater whole of human life, of life. And when we practice, the ways that we change and become transformed ripple out to touch everyone who we meet in this lifetime and maybe even further through purification of consciousness. So as we practice, we dedicate our efforts to all beings everywhere. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings experience the joy and release of awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.